This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly message podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's message. A few minutes ago, as we were singing, we were actually singing an invitation. And it's an invitation that is stated actually both ways in Scripture. And uh, the invitation first comes from our Heavenly Father, who says, All who are thirsty, why don't you come and drink of the water of life? And uh, I'm so happy to be able to give to all of us uh, a wonderful invitation that comes from none less than God Himself, that we can drink freely of the water of life. And that means when you come to church, and you drink freely of the water of life in this setting, that you should, you should feel refreshed. And my prayer is for all of us when we leave this morning, that we will leave more refreshed than when we got here. Is that a good idea? That's a great idea. Because we come to meet with our Heavenly Father. And when you get together with your Heavenly Father, He has a way of imparting life to you. But then the other side of that, is what we sang about in the, in, the, in the chorus of that song. And that is our invitation, come, Lord Jesus, come. Because the, the interesting thing about our Heavenly Father, though He's always ready to meet with us, and though He's always ready to impart life, He never forces it on us. He never barges into our life. He waits for an invitation. He doesn't beat down the door. He waits for an invitation. My prayer for all of us this morning is that that we would give him that invitation to speak into our lives today. And uh, so I want to encourage you to do that in our worship times and also as I speak to you this morning. Um, So, now, I've enjoyed getting to meet several of you who are new this morning on the way in. And uh, so I'm going to go over something that everybody that comes here all the time knows. But for all of us who are new, uh, I'll walk us through this. If you would take your program, which hopefully you got on the way in, if you didn't, uh, you can get one back at the tables. Feel free to go back and do that right now if you want to. In the program, there's a long skinny card that's called a connect card. It says start here on one side, connect card on the other side. Um, we have a great desire to help you connect with God. And so we're going to ask you to do something bold and courageous. Give us the ability to connect with you. And uh, so uh, we're all going to put our names and our email addresses on the bottom here. If you're new to New Life, put as much other information there as you're comfortable with. Uh, Please know that we will handle that with integrity. And we have only one desire, and that is to help you connect with God. Because we know that in in getting you connected with God, that He will bring life change into your life. Things we could never do. And uh, we're very excited about that. Once you've got that filled out, just hang on to it. And at the end of the service, we we will be collecting those along with our tithes and offerings and some other things that Pastor Kevin will lead us through. It's a great morning to be at church. We are wrapping up a series called Baggage. And we've got all sorts of props scattered around here that, that, that we have used in learning about this. This pile of bags reminds us of, of, of the fact that we all tend to collect bags in life and they get heavy when we carry them and don't figure out how to let go of them. And, and then we actually have spent the last two weeks talking about two of the bigger bags that we tend to collect and carry in life. Um, we talked about the baggage of addiction. 
And just this last week, I was praying with some people and praying for some people that right here in our church that are struggling with addiction. And um, what, what a great way to partner, to, to be able to release some of those really heavy bags. And then last week, we talked about closing the doors to the negative voices in our lives. And we talked about uh, that emotional baggage. And uh, this morning, I'm going to talk to us about depression. And um, I know right away that's a buzzkill, right? Great. The pastor's going to talk about depression. Wasn't he the one that just talked about being refreshed? How do those two go together, right? Well, they do actually go together. We're going to talk about, uh, I'm going to haul out some facts and figures for us, and then we're going to look at the Bible, and and we're going to find some ways for us to deal with those uh, episodes that come into our lives. So, as I think about depression, I'm thinking about the fact that there's there's sort of two different kinds of people on the outside in terms of their impression of depression. There's that group of people that, um, that think that every time that their NFL team loses on Sunday, that Monday they're depressed. I have news for you. You're not depressed. You're childish. Okay? That's not worth being depressed over, okay? We're not talking about some, some just mild discouragement or disappointment in life. In fact, I, I did some medical research and so forth and put together a definition of depression because I want us to know what we're talking about. Take a look at the video screen. Depression is severe despondency. That means it has an overwhelming nature to it. It includes dejection accompanied by feelings of hopelessness, inadequacy, and guilt that produce a sadness greater and more prolonged than that warranted by an objective reason. Let's go back to our NFL team that lost. If I interviewed you today and you said, I am so depressed. I mean, I'm really depressed. I'm having a hard time functioning in life. And I said, have you been able to pinpoint what might have triggered that in your life? And you say, my football team lost the last game of the season. Wow. How many months ago was that? Okay. That would be a sadness that would be more prolonged and greater than would be warranted by any logical reason. Correct? Yeah. So, uh, when we talk about depression, we're talking about something that, first of all, is overwhelming. Secondly, we're talking about something um, that is debilitating. And I'm going to unfold that for us as we walk through the rest of what we're going to talk about this morning. And then last of all, it's important that you know that there are certain aspects of, of depression that, are act- that actually defy logic. And one of the big struggles that all people have who struggle with depression is is the, the tug between what they know to be true up here, but what they feel to be true down here. And it's there's a huge disconnect there, and there's a huge battle that goes on inside of depression. And uh so that's on the one side, people that think, Oh my goodness, I'm depressed all the time, I gotta okay. The other side of that are are people that think Golly, just get a grip, would you? 
Yeah, I, I, I don't believe in depression. I think it's just people feeling sorry for themselves. There's a whole group of people out there that actually feel that. Okay? So here's a little bit of medical research. Research, and by the way, uh, this is kind of fun to do. Uh, researchers have noted differences in the brains, actual physical differences in the brains of people who are depressed as compared to people who are not. The hippocampus, a small part of the brain that's vital to the storage of memories, is smaller in people with a history of depression than in those who've never been depressed. Smaller hippocampus has fewer serotonin receptors. Serotonin is a calming brain chemical known as a neurotransmitter. It allows communication between the nerves in the brain and the body. It's also thought that the neurotransmitter norepinephrine may be involved in depression. Scientists do not know why the hippocampus is smaller in those with depression. Some researchers have found that the stress hormone cortisol is produced in excess in people who are depressed. They believe that cortisol has a toxic or poisonous effect on the hippocampus. Other experts believe that depressed people are simply born with a smaller hippocampus and therefore are inclined to suffer with depression. One thing is certain. Depression is a complex illness with many contributing factors, including abuse. That means that people who have been abused tend to have a much more uh, inclination toward depression. Response to certain medications. Have you ever read all the disclaimers on your bottle of medication? It would make you not want to take any, right? Okay. Conflict, loss of a loved one, trauma. For instance, 12% of the women who give birth in this year will suffer post-birth uh, uh, depression. What do they call them? The baby blues? Post, yeah, that whole thing, postpartum. That's very severe. Okay? Social struggles, other serious health issues. Listen to this. You know anyone who's had a heart attack or a serious heart episode? Did you know that on the other side of a heart attack or a serious heart episode, 53% of all people who have a heart attack struggle with depression after that. that this, it's, it's a multifaceted thing. Substance abuse and even genetics weigh in. This year alone, this really staggered me, this year alone, more than 25 million people in the United States alone will experience at least one major depressive episode. Friends, that's approaching 10%. Just look around the audience this morning. One out of 10 of us in this year alone is going to struggle with what we're talking about today. Okay? Now, I have good news. God has a way to work through that. Here's the first thing I want you to know. That just because you struggle with depression doesn't mean, oh my goodness, I'm done for. God can never do anything great through me. That's not true. In fact, I did a little bit more research and found out that there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people throughout history, people that you have heard of, 
through whom God has done great things, and they regularly struggled with depression, but it didn't ruin their life. For instance, all of us have been inspired by the art of Michelangelo. Did you know he struggled with depression his whole life? If you've ever studied history, you've heard of Martin Luther. Martin Luther struggled with depression his whole life. Mozart, again, struggled with depression. Our most famous and most popular president, Abraham Lincoln, struggled with depression his whole life. David Letterman struggles with depression. Gwen Stefani struggles with depression. Okay? Now, I can give you a long, long, long list. But you know what the interesting thing is? We look around and oftentimes we think, oh my goodness, what a terrible burden to bear. Depression is like any other uh, weakness that we might have. We can either let it rise up and dominate our lives or we can learn to handle it as God gives us the strength and shows us how. I can tell you that in my life, and I'll share a little bit of my story as we go along, in my life I've had two episodes in the last 10 years of very severe depression. Um, First time it hit me, I did not know what hit. I simply got up in the morning, I went to the closet, I could not put a pair of pants and a shirt together. That's a relatively small decision in the grand scheme of life, wouldn't you think? Yeah, I just couldn't do it. Why? I don't know for sure why, but something was wrong. Something, I was broken on the inside. And the second time that, that, uh, I, that I struggled with depression, on that time I was so broken, I was afraid I would never be normal again. Yeah. So when I talk to you this morning about depression, I'm not talking to you about theory. I'm not talking to you about something that a few people over here in the corner have. I'm talking about something that I walk through and something that I've had to struggle with in my own life. So there's a little background on depression. Now, as we walk through this morning, we're going to look at a, at a number of things. And, and let's move on to the next section because we're going to talk about Elijah's story. Elijah was one of the, uh, Israel's most famous and colorful prophets He was such a great guy. In fact, he's one of only two guys never to have died. And yet, there's there's indication in Scripture that Elijah struggled with depression. Famous prophet of God, colorful guy, did some great things. I mean, things that no one else did, that God did through him, and yet he struggled with depression. And and we're going to kind of cut into his life um, in the middle, well, maybe toward the end of his life. Because God comes to Elijah one day and says, Elijah, um, here's the deal. I want you to pray that it won't rain and it's not going to rain till I say it will. And I want you to go tell the king. So he goes to the king and says, I'll pray to God. And God said, it's not going to rain until he says so. And the king laughed at him and thought, what a crazy old kook of a guy. As he turned around and walked out of the, out of the palace. But three years later, with no rain, he was looking for that kook. Right? Because he figured out that guy has control of the faucet. I don't know where it is, but wherever he is, I need him. And one day, God says to Elijah, I want you to go down and I want you to offer a contest. Because the real problem is my people are not worshiping me. 
they're actually worshiping an idol, an idol called Baal. And so Elijah went and he showed himself to the king and he talked to the people and he said, look, you people got a real problem. In fact, I read this to you a couple of weeks ago. And that is you can't decide whether to worship God or whether to worship idols. So you kind of half-heartedly worship God and half-heartedly worship this idol. And so he said, I'll tell you what, let's have a contest. Let's go up here to Mount Carmel, which was, which was the tallest mountain in the, in the region of Samaria where they were. And he said, here's the deal. We're going to build two altars, and on both altars we're going to put a sacrifice. But we're not going to light the fire. And so, you prophets of Baal, you pray to Baal, and ask Baal to answer with fire. And if Baal answers with fire, we're all worshiping Baal. I'm on board with you. I'll even become one of those. But if Baal doesn't answer, then I'm going to pray to God. I'm going to pray to Jehovah God. We're going to ask Him to answer by fire. And whichever God answers by fire, we're in. Everybody on board with that? They all said, okay, let's have a contest. So they all went up to the top of Mount Carmel. And uh, Elijah, being a gentleman, said, you guys can go first. And so there were 400 prophets of Baal. And they started crying to Baal and praying to Baal. And they were cutting themselves and doing all kinds of stuff to try to get their God's attention. But finally, about 5 o'clock that evening, Elijah said, okay, you've had your shot. They'd been up there all day doing that. And he said, okay, it's, it's my turn. And so he prayed a very simple prayer, and God sent fire down from heaven, and it not only lit the sacrifice, it consumed the sacrifice, and the wood underneath the sacrifice, and the stones of the altar. You know, when God gets ready to do something, it's impressive. Right? Yeah. And it was a great, great victory. And Elijah's thinking, yeah, this is great. Well, word of that gets to the queen, who was the champion of Baal worship, and she sends out this threat. And she says, you tell Elijah this, by tomorrow, I'm going to kill him. That's what I think of his contest. I'm going to kill him. And that's where we're going to break into the story. Take a look. Elijah was afraid and, fed and fled for his life. He went to Beersheba, a town in Judah, and he left his servant there. And actually, his servant was his assistant and his closest friend. Then he went on alone into the wilderness, traveling all day, and he sat down under a solitary broom tree and prayed that he might what? Does he sound depressed? Yeah, he's pretty depressed. He said, I've had enough, Lord. By the way, that might not be the best way to start your prayer. Okay? But he was honest. I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors who have already died. Then he laid down and slept under the broom tree. Wow, there he was. Now God let him sleep a while. And then he sent an angel and he tapped him on the shoulder and woke him up. And the angel had some food there. Now where is he? He's not at your local McDonald's store. He's out in the middle of the wilderness under a broom tree, right? There's no food for miles around. And, he, and he, here the angel brings food and says, you need to eat because God's sending you on a journey. I want you to go 150 miles to the south to Mount Sinai, which was a very important mountain in the history of the nation of Israel. And, and God says, I'll meet you there. So Elijah got up and he ate and he traveled 40 days and got to Mount Sinai. And the next morning, God had a meeting with him. And that's where we'll see next. And God asked Elijah a question. He says, what are you doing here? Have you ever noticed that sometimes in the Bible God asks questions he already knows the answer to? 
But he's asking the question because he wants us to think. He's not saying, what are you doing here? Elijah could have said, you know, you sent me here. That's what I'm doing here. Elijah knew there was more behind that question. And this is the question I I want you to get. Because the real question God was asking Elijah is, Elijah, what circumstances have you allowed to accumulate in your life to completely distract you from my purpose for you? I want to say that again. What circumstances have accumulated in your life that you have allowed to completely distract you from my purpose for your life? That would be a good question for us to ask ourselves. Even if you don't think you're depressed. What circumstances are in your life right now that are distracting you from God's purpose for your life? That's why he said, Elijah... What are you doing here, man? Wow. Take a look at Elijah's next description of himself. He replied, I have zealously served the Lord of God Almighty. But the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you. They've torn down your altars. They've killed every one of your prophets. And I am the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. This is a big can of worms, right? Yeah. You know, in that description and the description that Elijah gave just earlier that we read, he actually lists, just lays them out, the five components of depression. Everyone I've ever talked to, even my own episodes of depression, all five of these are present and they're present in spades. And here they are. Number one is fear. Elijah said, I was afraid. Every single person I've talked to who struggles with depression says there's this, there's this overwhelming sense of impending doom. It's just like a cloud. Remember Andy Cap? Remember the old comic strip Andy Cap? And there was Joe, and you could never pronounce his last name because it was all consonants. And he had the little cloud over his head and was always raining wherever he went. Yes, it's that. Sense of fear and doom. Second thing is failure. A sense that I have failed. Elijah's thinking everybody's going to now worship God. But, you know, in spite of that great contest, the hearts of the people did not change. They actually sided with the queen and decided it was a good idea to kill Elijah. That was easier than just going and worshiping God. Elijah figured, my ancestors, the prophets who have gone before me, have tried to get the people to to turn away from idol worship and to worship the one true and living God, and they failed, and I have failed too. Strong sense of failure. Third, fatigue. Strong sense of fatigue. I've worked and worked and worked, and I've tried and tried and tried, and I'm really tired. Fourth, a sense of hopelessness. That everything I'm doing, it doesn't make any difference anyway. It's not going to change anything. Nothing's ever going to be any different than it is right now. The sense of hopelessness. And you put all those four together and you get number five and that's guilt. Just this overwhelming sense that I shouldn't be feeling like this. I shouldn't think like this. And and I certainly shouldn't be acting like this. And, and I feel like a failure. That's going to help you feel guilty, right? Sense of hopelessness. I'm going to feel guilt. All those things. You know, oftentimes when you put all those together, 
They, they just add up to this overwhelming sense of, I don't know how to move forward in life. God has a solution. And it's the turning point. And every single time that someone deals successfully with depression, you can read it in history, you can read it in the lives of people who have struggled with depression, but every single time they reach a turning point. And God has a turning point for Elijah. And here's what it is. God said to Elijah, Go out and stand before me on the mountain. By the way, anytime God says, I want you to stand before me, you can expect a turning point, correct? Yeah. Something's going to change, and it will not be Him. Can I tell you in my own story? Uh, the last time that I went through an episode of depression, I, I shared earlier that I, I, I was so broken internally that I, I had large fears that I would never, ever be right again. And I, I didn't know what all that meant. I knew it would mean I couldn't serve as your pastor. I, I didn't know what it would mean. But I was very much afraid, and there was good reason for me to be afraid. And I sat down at the dining room table in my house uh, a- after an extended period of, of a break from my duties as pastor of the church. And I was no better. And there was a turning point for me, and it was just sort of like Elijah, where God said, I need you to allow me to speak a truth into your life. And he said, you know, those messages of fear and failure and hopelessness and guilt and all that stuff, those messages don't come from me. Well, where do they come from then? That would be the next question, right? And God said, they actually come from your enemy and my enemy. They actually come from Satan. Now, here's what I want you to see. Because I'll go back and tell you a little bit more of the rest of that story. All depression, ultimately, can be traced back to a distorted, some distorted view of life. And I can tell you that Satan is the master at twisting our view of life. And when God helped me see that the messages that I was believing, the messages of fear and failure and all those things, when God said, those didn't come from me. But I I started to argue with him, but there's some truth in those. And he said, yeah, there is some truth in those But all the stuff that's in and around that truth that you're believing doesn't doesn't come from me. And if you let that stuff go, I'll distill out the tiny pieces of truth that are in there and I'll give you the right perspective to look at those in. I want to tell you what happened in my life. I said turning point, right? God had one other message for me. He said, Ron, the real problem is these messages don't come from me but you are voluntarily giving them space in your life. And you're allowing them to dominate your thinking. And as long as you decide to believe that voice more than mine, I can't do anything for you. That was big. Sitting at my dining room table, I began to pray. And I said, God, 
forgive me. I didn't realize I was doing myself in. I didn't realize that I was giving space to the wrong voice in my life. You can tell, this kind of goes back to shutting the door to those negative voices, only it's, the scale is much bigger in depression than in emotional baggage. Now the end result of that story is 20 minutes later, I'm a different person. I mean, the whole thing took 20 minutes. I got up from the table. I came to work. The staff said, welcome back. I came to church. I hadn't missed a Sunday the whole time. I preached, actually, during that time of break. But I had people that knew me well who met me in the lobby and said, you're back. Meaning, something happened on the inside of you. And it had. It's a turning point. And my challenge and my encouragement to every one of us this morning that's going through a time of depression is go home and say, God, bring me to that point of decision, that turning point in my life, so that my distorted view of life can be straightened out. So how's God going to do that? He's going to do that in three different ways. Take a look. Number one He's going to tell us to deal with the physical first. One of the things that God had to deal with me was, remember one of Elijah's problems was fatigue? Okay? I had to own that, that I had fatigued myself by working way too long and way too hard. And and God's going to tell us to deal with the physical. Three different areas. He's going to deal, first of all, with rest. If you're going to deal with depression, you've got to get eight hours of sleep night after night after night after night after night. You cannot deal with depression and be fatigued. Oftentimes, our depression is directly related to our physical condition. The second thing is exercise. Did you notice? God could have met Elijah under the broom tree, but he sent him on a 150-mile journey. And Elijah was walking. Okay, Because there's a, there's a direct connection between exercise and working out some of the stress. And God looked at Elijah and that dude was stressed. And he said, it's going to take more than a few laps for you, buddy. It's going to take 150 miles. Got it? So he sent him on a 150-mile journey. And, and, and I could give you lots of, lots of um, research on that. But exercise is key. And then diet doesn't do any good to be depressed if you're eating stuff that sends you on a sugar high and then you crash off that sugar high on a sugar low. You'll never get control of your emotions. And there's a, there's a lot of research on that. So God's going to start with rest. He's going to start with exercise. He's going to start with diet. But there's a, there's a fourth thing that I want to talk to you about, and that's medicine. Because I know that there are some people that say, oh, yeah, you're going to go get some of those antidepressants. You should turn to God instead of antidepressants. Well, back the train up just a little bit. Okay? When you get an infection, do you take antibiotics? Why would you? Do you take an antibiotic every time you get a little infection? Every time you see a pimple, you go get antibiotics? No. But if you get a serious infection, okay, you're going to go get some help. Why? Because your body is threatened with being overwhelmed 
by that infection. And when you enter the overwhelmed zone, you recognize you need some help. Same thing is true with your mind. Okay? I can tell you that in both episodes that I went through of depression, I went to the doctor and the doctor said, you need a mild form of an antidepressant. You won't have to take it long probably, but it will give you the help to get over the hump. It will help you not be overwhelmed. Now, having said that, there are also people that have to take antidepressants their entire life. Why? Because they were born with the deficiency in how that they were made. Very similar to people. You know anybody has to take insulin their entire life because they were born a diabetic? Do we look at them and say, wow, that's, that's kind of wacky. Why would you take medicine your whole life? You just turn to God. No, we recognize that they were born with a pancreas that doesn't secrete the proper amount of insulin and they need help their entire life. I've known some Christians, wonderful Christian people, that just don't have the right chemicals in their brain. Period. You know anybody who's bipolar? They would fit into that category. There's, there's all sorts of things. So you know what? There's a passage of Scripture that says, no temptation has, comes into your life, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, and in every temptation, He will provide a way out so you can stand up under it. Well, for those who are born with that deficiency, their way out is the medical doctors who can help them be normal and be like everybody else. So I specifically want to speak to those of us who struggle. I remember a lady from this church who came to me years ago, and she said, I've taken antidepressants since I was 16. And she was 30-something at the time. And she said, I've become a Christian. I've got no problems and so forth. I just want to get off these antidepressants, and, and, and I want to you know, sail through life. I said, fine, give it a shot. Let's see what happens. Because I didn't know if she was somebody, because she had had to deal with some really big She'd been sexually abused and lots of other problems. So I didn't know whether those things were the cause of the depression or whether she just had a physical limitation. And about three months after going off the medicine, she looked at me and she goes, I'm going down. I said, Do you anything you can point to in your life? No, life is good. Marriage is good. Friends are good. Everything's good. But I'm just going down. I said, okay, you're one of those people. You just need to be thankful that God has enabled you to have this medicine. Take it like a diabetic would take insulin. And then you can function like all the rest of us. And don't feel guilty. And don't feel like you have a lack of faith. This is where you should be. She started taking it again. Life was good. Okay? So that's the physical. Deal with the physical first. Now there's two other things that we need to handle. And the second is, we need to talk about it. We need to talk about it with God. And we need to talk about it with other people. Elijah talked about it with God. And that was really, really important for him. It was important for me. I talked about it with God. Okay, the Depression is not something that you hide from God. It's something that you work on. And you talk to God because He will meet you there. But you can't just talk to God about it. you got to talk to other people about it. Elijah made a key mistake in dealing with his own depression. 
and, and I just sort of read right over it. But when he got to the town of Beersheba, he left his, his best friend, his associate, his assistant, and, and, and the guy who worked with him, he left him in Beersheba. And the Bible says he went on alone. Key mistake. One of the tendencies of depression is for us to isolate ourselves. Worst thing we could do. Absolute worst thing. Because as we begin to share with those who are closest to us, God begins to speak healing into our lives through them. It's been important in my life. It will be important in yours. One little caution here before we move to the last one. And that is, it's important for you to talk to other people about what you're going through, but don't make it your identity. I'm on board. Everybody on board with that? You are more than just a depressed person. When you talk with other people, talk about the rest of your life as well. Otherwise, they don't want to talk with you. And rightfully so. And then last of all, it's important that you do something with purpose. Elijah thinks, oh my goodness, I've got no purpose in life. I mean, that was my mountaintop experience and it did nothing and fell flat. And God said, no, Elijah, I've got four things for you to do and they're all important for my kingdom. And you can't do it under a broom tree or in a cave on a mountain. I got stuff for you to do, man. And the truth is, one of the greatest things you can do to lift the spirit of depression in your life, one of the greatest things you can do is find your purpose in life and devote yourself to it. Because as you live with purpose, God will speak into your life and begin to bring healing. So we wrap up this entire series. I want to go back, and the worship team is going to lead us in a song about breaking every chain. As they come and get set up for that, I want to wrap up this series just by walking through very quickly the prayers and things that we have learned, and here they are. Okay? Under baggage check, we said, Father, change the way I think with the truth. Why, why am I doing this? Because I want you to pray while the worship team sings. I want you to pray that God will guide you to just one or two of these out of the entire series that you need to focus on, that he's calling you to focus on. So some of us need to pray, God, change the way I think with your truth. Let's go back one. Restore to me what is lost and help me release my offender. Then the second week, under addiction, we we prayed, first of all, take it to God. We need to do that. Or take it public. Talk to someone else about this addiction we're facing in our life. And then have that Popeye moment where we take it down and say, I can't stand it anymore. This is the moment. And then last week we talked about closing the door on our emotional baggage by, by learning in, when we get this message we don't belong by saying, I'm chosen. When we get the message that says you're not good enough, no, I'm holy. God made me holy. And when we get the message that says you're not worthy, no, 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 I've been adopted by God. And then the ones that we've looked at today, and that is, I've got to deal with the physical first. I've got to talk about it with God and with others. I've got to do something with purpose. I just want you to do your business with God because what God wants to do, break every chain in your life and in mine. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. You can find more information about New Life, including contact information, at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks for listening.